Good morning. Everybody well? Great. We are back in Nehemiah this morning, chapter 6. If you guys want to turn there. Uh, Why don't you stand with me? Let's read. We're going to read Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. (coughs) And it goes as such. Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us together in the house of God within the temple Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. You can be seated. Is there anybody in here in this room that's ever done a marathon, triathlon, endurance race of any sorts? Any sorts? Um, nice. For any of you that have done any endurance activities at all, you know that there's a point at which in a race where it, in some, for some they'll call it bonking, for some they'll call it hitting a wall, where basically your body depletes all the glycogen stores within your body and you just, you literally hit a wall, like you have no energy left in you. Anybody ever felt that before? Um, I, I remember watching this marathon, 1996, I think it was, was, when this marathon race was ran, and there was a guy by the name of Bob Campanian. I don't know if anybody knows who this dude is, uh, but he was qual- trying to qualify for the Olympics in Charleston, North Carolina, and the Olympics were going to be held in Atlanta, Georgia that year, and as Bob got out on the course, he gets like 20 miles into the race, and he basically uh, starts to bonk. And in doing so, the guy starts throwing up. I don't know if any any of you saw this finish. But he's got two people in front of him. He's 20 
two miles into the race, he just starts throwing up viciously. Like, it's the most insane video you'll ever see. And the guy's just hauling, and he's just like, ah, ah, like he's throwing up everywhere. And the commentators are like, what is going on? This guy is so sick. Like, he's going to stop at any minute. And the guy just keeps on going, and he just keeps on throwing up. And it just almost gets old. You just see him keep throwing up. But the more he throws up, the faster he gets. And literally in the last three miles of the race, while throwing up, he passes the two guys in front of him and he wins the race. It's an insane story. I mean, you, you need to go watch it. It's, uh, like, it. it's amazing. Gross, but amazing. As I was thinking through that this week, that example, I mean, this guy was a medical student. He trained 100 miles a week for that race. He was 29 years old, like super athletic, and he hit a wall. Like he just hit a wall in the race and he couldn't go anymore. And it actually drove him to press even harder. And I'll tell you what, the, the people that, that are running hard after Jesus, it's not the ones that have the easy road that impress you the most, is it? it it's the ones that are thrown up along the way. The ones that are actually passing people while they're throwing up. It's the, when the odds are all stacked against them and they continue to push forward and persevere and they have the, this perseverance to continue on. Those are the stories when people like encounter severe obstacles in life or challenges. They, 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 they have these massive opposition against them and somehow by the power of God, like they're able to overcome these things. Those are the stories that we all love. And those are the stories that are told in Christians for the last 2,000 years. That in the face of adversity, in the face of opposition, the church grew. Christians became stronger. Even when some were killed and martyred, they became stronger. And as we reach this section of Nehemiah 6, we've already talked prior about portions of times when he was building the wall, that there was opposition that they faced both internally and externally. But now he, the opposition continues to ramp up. And we know that Nehemiah, just to give us a little bit of overview, it's a story it's been a month since we've been in Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is, is this story about God's people uniting together to accomplish something extraordinary, like even in the midst of this time of brokenness, right? It's one of the most inspiring, like one of the most memorable stories of revival and restoration that we see in the word of God. And you talk about perseverance and overcoming adversity, like here's a textbook written on it right here. So we're about halfway through the book of Nehemiah as we sit right now. And I wanna quickly kind of review what we've learned so far. So prior to the time of Nehemiah's whole story, God's people are in exile due to their disobedience towards God. He sends them into exile to Babylon. And the, the, these kings of Persia allowed the Jewish people eventually to return to their ancient homeland, to the promised land, back to Jerusalem. And, the city, as they return, is just lying in shambles. It's been completely destroyed. It's not the same place that they had left. The, the walls around the city are broken down. They're in shambles. The gates have been burned. Like, it's the whole place is a mess. And so as a result, the, the people, because the walls are down, the gates are burned, the people are exposed to the attacks of the enemy. I mean, the whole purpose of walls around cities at that time was to protect them from the enemy, like to give them a sense of protection. Like they, they had walls set up and these massive gates to protect them and to keep the city on lockdown. 
But Jerusalem was in ruins. Like they had no protection. Everything had been collapsed. And so this Jewish man that's working as a cupbearer to the king of Persia named Nehemiah happens to hear about the brokenness in Jerusalem, that, that, that things are not as they used to be. And he's moved to tears. He's a Jew, but he's living in Persia. He's working for the king as this cupbearer. And he's moved to tears. And so as we talked about before, he fasts and he prays for days and he talks, he takes this massive risk to go to the king of Persia that he works for and ask for permission to go back down to Jerusalem and to rebuild these city walls, which was a massive risk on his, on his behalf. Like there was no way this guy was going to say yes. And miraculously, this king of Persia, Artaxerxes, grants him his request. He allows him to go back down to Jerusalem to do this work, and he also funds the project in the meantime and sends guys with him. And so Nehemiah goes back down to Jerusalem. Nehemiah takes the first little while, and he studies the city, gets a lay of the land. It's just in shambles, trying to figure out what the caliber and the scope of the work is going to be. And then Nehemiah begins to sort of cast this vision for restoration to the Jewish people, what they're, they're going to be a part of, what they're going to do. They're going to rebuild this wall. And then the people get to work. It says that they had a mind to work. They unite and they begin to work on this wall to rebuild it. And so even though Nehemiah faces opposition both from the outside and from the inside, um, like from even with regards to the internal sin of the people that he's working with, he's facing opposition on both sides. But Nehemiah continues to fearlessly lead the people of Jerusalem so that they can do this work to restore the walls. Like this is his call from God to contribute to this work. And so, so throughout our study of this book in Nehemiah, we, we've explored the, the story of Nehemiah. We've applied these lessons from the, this process like to our own lives, like how in the world can we overlay what Nehemiah experienced um, and what he's experiencing even in what we're in today, to our own lives today in 2023. Seems weird to say that. But we've also seen how, how God has given us a mission. Like he, he's given us, Anthem CDA, he's given us a mission to reach our city. He's given us a mission as his people of God to faithfully bear witness to the kingdom of Jesus to others in this community. And so we've also seen that, that when we seek to partner with God in his mission, as Nehemiah and the people were doing, that we also will continue to face opposition in various forms. Like there's these external spiritual attacks that will try to stop us. They will try to thwart us. And even our, our own sin, like our internal sin will get in the way at times and keep us from doing the things that God has asked us to do. But this week... In this text, I want to look at another threat to our call as the people of God. And it's really neat that we land on this passage this week coming out of what Neil talked about last week because really this whole thing is encompassed in fear. I mean, if you look back at that, that text oops, in Nehemiah, there's several parts where it says that, um, that, that they did this to instill fear. They wanted to frighten us. They wanted to make us afraid. Like that was the hope of the enemy was to get into their heads and to cause fear to get them to stop the work that God had called them to do. What is distraction? That's just a really simple question I'm gonna ask right off the bat. When we think about on a basic level what distraction is in our lives, it's anything that would keep us from focusing on or giving our full attention to the thing that matters most. 
So you look at the things in your life that matter most right now and then think about all the tertiary distractions that you have in your life that deter you from the things that matter most. I mean, when I look at my life, I would say there's a handful of things that I always put first, right? Like God is first. My family comes second. Then I've got friends and then I've got work. And so when I begin to get those things out of balance, oftentimes in my life, the enemy wants me to get all these other things and put all these other, like money and career and stuff, and I gotta put these things first, and so I work really hard to acquire all these things, and I start to get my, my priorities out of whack, and what begins to happen in my life is I open myself up to attack. And so there's something about keeping our priorities straight but again, distraction is being deterred from the things that matter most in your life. Fear is one of the most powerful motivating emotions in our lives, bar none. And sadly, there are many people who live their lives motivated almost completely out of fear. Like everything they do is driven by fear. And fear can motivate everything from like debilitating phobias that people have in their life to conspiracy theories, which we've seen a ton of in the last three years, to like self-destructive behaviors and paranoia. Um, like fear can be one of the greatest distractions that the enemy can use to take our focus off of God and put it on Satan himself. That we would be debilitated by fear. Fear has even been so powerful that there are numerous cases in history where like these evil dictators, these authoritarian figures have like risen to power and been able to control people in history through fear. I mean, you look at tyrants like Hitler and you look at Saddam Hussein, like men who were able to like amass a ton of power in their lifetime and then harness fear as a weapon towards the people that they're leading. And the reason that I think it's interesting to use this example of tyrants in regards to fear is that I want you to see that when fear has a role in your life, when it's given a front seat, it actually begins to play that tyrannical role in your life. It actually does captivate you. It begins to lead you. It drives everything in your life. Fear wants to rule you ruthlessly. And so if you obey your fear, then your fear promises to bless you, right? Like if you just give in to your fears, there's something that awaits you. And so we just continue to give in to it. Like if you disobey your fear, then, then somehow your fear threatens to punish you. Like you're gonna lose everything. And it's almost as if your fears are able to take on like a personality of themselves in our lives. And they actually do. But often our fears create these like self-fulfilling prophecies that, that, that lead us to make decisions that draw us closer to the things that we actually dread. There's obviously some fear for us in the natural, just we should fear some things. It's okay to be afraid of heights. Anybody else afraid of heights? If you're not afraid of heights, you have a demon, right? Like that's just, that's not normal. Um, those of you who don't fear standing on the edge of a cliff and looking down, I'm like, good Lord, you know, like that, that's just not supposed to be. You should have some fear. 
Um, it, it's okay to fear when you're a situ- in a situation where you're lost or you can't make sense of something that's taking place in your life. Like there are healthy fears that we as humans should have. I would call that natural, like life-preserving sort of fear that we have or prudence as it's referred to in Proverbs 8 where it says that wisdom dwells with prudence. However, When these toxic forms of fear begin to control us, it means that something spiritually has shifted. Like where God has been removed from a place of priority and this other thing has now taken the place of God. We begin to idolize it. God has actually invited us as followers of Jesus into another way. He's invited us into a better way, a life of flourishing, really, without the dictatorship of fear. Like the word tells us, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The word tells us that God's perfect love does what? Cast out all fear. Not the healthy fear, like God's perfect love doesn't allow you to stand on the edge of a cliff and be like, eh, I'm not even afraid of it. But God's perfect love casts out the fear that the enemy wants to use to take the driver's seat in your life and paralyze you in fear of the what ifs or the things you can't make sense of in your life. And throughout scripture, there are 364 specific commandments to fear not. And so while God is holy and God is just and God is sovereign, while he's worthy of this holy fear, the gospel in and of itself is unique in the fact that it doesn't motivate us primarily by fear or anxiety. Rather, the the gospel of Jesus actually motivates us to fulfill our mission through this like faith-generated courage that you and I have, that we get by the Lord. And the passage that we're reading today gives us this amazing picture of what courage actually looks like in real life, in the face of opposition, what it looks like to continue the work that God has called us to do. And so today I want to take a deeper look into what we can learn in the story of Nehemiah in chapter 6 about overcoming fear. And in this text, we see three attempts that the opposition takes to try to use fear to get Nehemiah to cease work on this wall that God's called him to restore. And what I love about the gospel of Jesus is that in Christ, we can actually have this deep abiding courage in the midst of three primary fears that I want to look at in this passage today. The fear of rejection, the, the, the fear of failure, and lastly, the fear of death. These are the things that the enemy begins to hurl at Nehemiah to convince him to stop work, to stop the good work, as Nehemiah calls it, that God has called him to do. So the first is the fear of rejection. So Nehemiah's enemies are baffled that despite of all their taunting and the threats that they've thrown at him, Nehemiah has actually continued to stay on mission. He's continued to work on the wall. He's managed managed to keep up building. And so if you look at the text, it says in verses 1 and 2, Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it. We talked about this before, right? That the the wall was halfway built, that the breaches were about to be closed and the opposition came in heavy. And it was interesting that it was in that moment because there were still breaches. So the enemy tries to get in any crack that he can. But at this point, the, the wall has been built. There's no breach left in it except for the fact that they haven't hung the gates. It says in verse 2, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, come let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. 
So we, we see that all the walls have been built. All that needs to be done is these gates need to be hung. And so Nehemiah's opposition, Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem, they come at Nehemiah with, with this last-ditch effort to distract him before the work is totally complete. And, and at this time, they start attacking Nehemiah personally. They, they begin by sending these invitations to, ne to Nehemiah to go meet with them. And now remember, these are men who have mocked Nehemiah and what it is that he set out to do. These are men who thought his plan was doomed to fail. They, they, they wanted to just see him humiliated. They even threatened an attack against the city of Jerusalem as a whole. Like these men, these men have been a constant nuisance for Nehemiah since the very beginning when he started this work. But now, since the restoration of Jerusalem is succeeding, they're pretending like they want to be his friends. It's as if they're sort of saying, look, I know that we've had our differences, but let's talk and work things out, Nehemiah. Like, let, let's work things out. When in reality, they just want to get Nehemiah off the wall. They want to get him out to this land, and they want to kill him. Like, they're still trying to find ways to create more drama and perhaps even attempt to kill Nehemiah. And, and they're still, um, they're trying to thwart the plan, the work that God had through Nehemiah. In their mind, after all, they're really important men who have been rulers of this region, these three guys that are coming against Nehemiah. And so surely they sort of think that Nehemiah is going to somehow stop what he's doing and give them priority and come and meet with them and clear up all the junk that they've said about him. And this is why Nehemiah's response frustrates them. He says, and I sent messengers to them, and he said this, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Like, why are you worth me stopping the work that God's asked me to do, coming down to you? He basically tells them, my mission from God is important. Like he says, it's, it is good work, and there's no way I'm leaving that work behind in order to come meet with you. And so when Sambalot and his crew try to distract Nehemiah by setting up this meeting with them, they're trying to not only distract Nehemiah from the task at hand that he's working on, but they're trying to get Nehemiah to give them a place of authority in Nehemiah's life. They want Nehemiah to be distracted from the mission by basically needing their approval. They want Nehemiah to obey them and be influenced by them. They want Nehemiah to fear their rejection. Many of us in this room, we're, we're aware of the, the tyranny that the fear of man can hold over our lives. I don't know how many of us in this room struggle with the fear of man. Maybe we're really social people, right? And we want to be accepted by friends more than anything else in the world. Maybe some of us are like seeking love and, and we're looking for a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend Somebody who's going to give us love because we're just seeking it so desperately. But whatever the case is, when we make the acceptance of others our idol and we begin to put others first, it actually leads to the fear of rejection controlling us. We become motivated like that in every aspect of our life. We're always living in the fear of being rejected. And when this is the case, we'll often find ourselves making even like moral compromises in our life because we want acceptance more than we want righteousness. We want people to like us and to be our buddies more than we want to actually do the right thing. And so we drink too much. We go to places we shouldn't go. We befriend people that we probably shouldn't befriend. We compromise in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. We begin to let our guards down, not because we hate God, 
but because we would rather have acceptance from people than nearness with the Father. That's a problem. But when you serve the idol of approval in your life, it's gonna inevitably fail you over and over again. And it's also interesting where they were, where they were wanting to take Nehemiah. They want to take him to this place called Hecaphirim. It says the plain of Ono. It's about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, probably a two days walk. They, they're not wanting to just get him outside the walls so that they can kill him, harm him. They're wanting him to go two days out into this place called Hecaphirim, into the plain of Ono, which historically was actually like a pretty nice place to go. So they're tempting him with something nice. There's a lure, come meet us here. We're gonna talk here. Like, come out here, come be with us. And Nehemiah says, no way. And the big idea is this, that you can't be on mission for God and be led by fear at the same time. You can't. Because you can never really love people if you're afraid of them and constantly derive your validation from people. But when we allow the gospel to realign our hearts, like to, to, to where God is God and where people are people, like God gets his place in our life, we can truly be freed of the fear of rejection and be released into being able to love as we're called to love. Like God is great and, and God is glorious, he's amazing. He, he's the most significant being in the universe and if you're his child, you have nothing to gain from the approval of other people, right? Nothing, because his approval is really all that matters. And when God looks upon you, you who are in Christ, what's he see? He neither sees your, your attempts at perfection and your attempts at righteousness, nor does he see your sin. Rather, he sees the perfection of his son, Jesus, is who God sees in you. He, he freely gives you the approval that you cannot lose, that no man can give you, that you never earned in the first place. It was by his grace. That's the gift of God. The second one is the fear of failure. After Sambalat and his crew continue to try to get Nehemiah off the work of the wall several more times and he can't succeed, they sort of up the ante. And then Sambalat writes this open letter that's read out loud to Nehemiah publicly before the citizens in Jerusalem. And he says this in chapter six, verses five through seven. In the same way, Sambalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That, that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. So Sambalat basically accuses Nehemiah of treason, right? He, he says that Nehemiah is this self-promoting sort of manipulator that's trying to lead Jerusalem into rebellion and make himself the king, like crown himself king. He says that Nehemiah has hired prophets to falsely prophesy that, that, that Nehemiah is God's chosen king. And Sambalat says that, that this is the real reason that Nehemiah built the wall to begin with, was because he wanted his place as king. And then he goes on to say that being he, Sambala, is such a loyal citizen that he's actually gonna tell the king that this has been Nehemiah's plan all along unless Nehemiah goes and talks to Sambala. 
And so now the motivation behind this becomes evil, like it becomes manipulative, right? The, the goal of Sambalot's tactic in all of this is to create fear that the Persians are going to attack the city, Jerusalem, in rebellion. And if this were true, that meant that all of the work of the wall would have been done in vain. Like if the people of Jerusalem actually believed this, they would have dropped their tools and succumbed to this like fear of failure. But as Nehemiah says, he says, for all they wanted, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. That's what he says. Like they just wanted to scare us. They wanted us to stop work, stop doing what God had asked us to do. But rather than falling for these schemes and being paralyzed by fear, Nehemiah does what? He prays for strength, and then he continues to work. He says, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. I don't know about you, but when I face opposition like that in my life, it is hard sometimes to face it and say, uh, not give in to it. In fact, in the midst of it, say, oh God, just like strengthen me to resist it. Let me continue the work that you've asked me to do. And some of you in this room are thinking like, well, I haven't been asked to build a wall. <laughs> cool. You've been, you've been asked to maintain a faithful marriage. You've been asked to raise your kids in the ways of Jesus. You've been asked to continue to passionately, zealously follow Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that is the work that he's asked us to be a part of. He's asked you to work the job that you have, whether you like it or not, with all of the Lord's passion and zeal for that job, to know that it's the job that he gave you to provide for your family. Whatever, he's given you the friendships, the relationships, to steward them in such a way in your life that they actually become priority, that that is part of the good work. So you don't have a wall to build, but you still have a life for Jesus to live. You have others to influence for Christ. And opposition will always come at you to try to do something else. In the same way, like in our culture, especially in our culture, it's actually really easy to make an idol out of success. And because of this, it's easy for us to be controlled by this fear of failure because success is the king, right? The, the, this, this fear is like marked by this constant chasing in our culture of the next achievement. Like I just need to do and do and do and it'll never let you rest and you will always be anxious and if you ever meet people who in your eyes are successful, even they feel like they haven't got there yet and there's something more to attain. And so we live in this world that's constantly telling us out of fear that we need to continue to be successful. And the fear of failure might make you act pridefully because you don't want anyone else to think you're a failure by being weak and by being vulnerable. Like as in the case of this passage, the fear of failure might make you act cowardly because you would rather not even try instead of trying and then failing. And the fear of failure might make you work to the point where you ultimately lose your family or your friendships because you never take the time to love and value people. You just work, you just do because you're always fearful of fail, failing and so you're always wanting to achieve and succeed and you're willing for everything else in your life, even your relationship with Jesus, to suffer just so that you can have success. And it's a really dangerous road to go down. And Nehemiah, he's courageous. 
Like even in some of this prospect of failure, like his strength is not in himself, but his strength is in the Lord. Like Nehemiah asked for him to strengthen his hands, for God to strengthen him. If Nehemiah were pursuing success by worldly standards, what would he have done? Stayed back in Persia and continued to be the cupbearer to the king, living in the king's quarters, having everything given to him hand and foot. Like he had the comfy, amazing life. And he left that life to focus on the good work that God had called him to. Nehemiah goes down to Jerusalem to focus on the restoration of this broken, impoverished, like forgotten city. Like it's desolate. But what Nehemiah is not living for is worldly success. Like he just doesn't care about it. He's living in obedience to God's mission. In other words, his life is not measured by what he's achieved. His life is valuable because he's actually part of God's redemptive story and history in this broken world. Like you can't be afraid of, fa of failure if your life is dedicated to the king of the universe. In the kingdom of God, success isn't determined by your fruitfulness, it's determined by your faithfulness. Are you steadfast? Are you being faithful with what God has called you to do? Or are you always seeking something more? Have you placed your identity in Jesus or are you placing your identity in your worth in your accomplishments, do they have the front row seat in your life? Lastly, this, number three, is the fear of death. And you would think after that, that last distraction, uh, the, this drama would be over, that these guys would just stop. But Sambala and his men continue to sort of fight dirty and so they hire this man, Shemaiah, who's apparently this false prophet in Jerusalem and they tell him to utter this false prophecy against Nehemiah in hopes that Nehemiah would basically make a mistake and sin against God, is what he's trying to do. And so Nehemiah comes over to Shemaiah's house, and Shemaiah tells Nehemiah that he should hide in the temple of God because there's an assassination plot against his life. Go hide yourself in the temple. And Nehemiah immediately reacts to this guy, right? For two reasons. Firstly, Nehemiah knows that he's been sent with the approval of the king, Artaxerxes, like he's got substantial backing. More importantly, what Nehemiah knows is that he's got the power of God on his side. And he has no need to back down, like Nehemiah is this man of courage. Look at verse 11, he says, but I said, should such a man as I run away? Like, I'm not going to give up. Secondly, Nehemiah knows that it would be a sin for him. And as one who's not a priest, he's not a Levite, for him to enter into the inner sanctuary of the temple of God's house would have been a sin. And so he says as a follow-up to that, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in there because he can't go in there. He's not supposed to go in there. It's against Jewish law for him to enter into the temple. So Nehemiah refuses to sin against this big God because he's afraid of little men. He doesn't do it. And interestingly, Nehemiah comes to understand that this prophecy was a joke. And, and he, he understands that after he rejects it in verse 12. Like he understands that this was a ploy to make him act cowardly and sin against the Lord so that he could be even more opposed by his enemies. But Nehemiah simply refuses to be led by fear, even the fear of death. And I think the fear of death is like the most basic fear that you and I have. This is the fear that all of us will face, like this haunting reality of our own mortality. Like, as you get older, it gets weirder, doesn't it? 
it becomes more real the older you get. You understand that you are mortal. Like, I was just talking to Shane Byler the other day about the fact when I go snowboarding now, my mind says I'm 20 and I can do all the things I used to do. My 44-year-old body says, whoa, dude, chill out. You know, like, you are going to kill us. And, and when I was 20, my mind wasn't thinking that. It was just like, go hard, charge it, go, like it's fun. Now there's like some wisdom in that, but there's also a sense that I could die. <laughs> wisdom says don't keep walking closer and closer to the edge of the cliff, like acknowledge that it's dangerous. And so Nehemiah is courageous. But what's interesting about Nehemiah is his courage wasn't derived from his talent. It wasn't derived from his might. It wasn't derived from his, like, his arrogance. Like Nehemiah's courage is derived from him being absolutely convinced of two truths. One, he's convinced of the calling that God gave him. God told him to build that wall. And two, he's also convinced that God is mighty. So he will not bow to fear even for the sake of his own self-preservation. He just will not do it. In the life of the Apostle Paul, you see this example in the New Testament of how to have courage in the presence of this fear. And so in, in the book of Philippians, Paul sort of taunts the fear of death when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, is what Paul says. And you think to yourself, like, how in the world is that possible? But Paul overcomes his fear of death because death means that he's gonna get to be with Jesus. So death in and of itself isn't even something that he fears. And for most of the world, death is the ultimate fear. We do everything in our lives to keep ourselves safe and protect us so that we don't die. But for Paul, death is actually gain because it's the doorway to everlasting life with Jesus. It's the ultimate gain for Paul, right? The same is true for you and I. You can live this life in self-protection mode and trying to be safe and do all the right things to protect your life. At the end of the day, do you acknowledge the fact that to live is Christ and to die is gain? That there's more power in dying and spending eternity with Jesus. And I want to encourage you this morning to, to let your heart be filled with this hope, church. Like, the, the hope of seeing the face of the one who saves you. Like, this is the hope that Nehemiah had. Let's not be satisfied with, like, a few sporadic spiritual experiences in our life where we just kind of rush from this spiritual experience to the next one. May our hope be actually to abide in God's presence forever. Amen? Like, how could you ever truly be led by fear if this is your unshakable hope in Christ? At the end of the passage, we see that Nehemiah succeeds and that his enemies fail. And it says this in verses 14 through 16, and I'll end with this. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot. Oh my God, I like this part. Remember them, Lord. Give them what they deserve. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also, let's, let's lump in the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month in Elul, of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with what? The help of our God, that's what he says. 
they knew in that moment that it wasn't just a bunch of motivated people that could make it happen on their own, but it was God who was behind them. The wall is rebuilt in 52 days, which is remarkable considering that it laid in ruins for decades, 100 years, like it laid in ruins. And rather than Nehemiah being afraid, it's actually Nehemiah's enemies who now are afraid because of what they saw God do with Nehemiah. And they begin to recognize that they've not been opposing a man, but, but that they've been opposing God himself. And fear is this real emotion. It's something that we all deal with. And I'm not in any way trying to encourage you to overcome fear in your life by ignoring it or by minimalizing it. Rather, I want to challenge you to confront your fear in light of who God is and who he has revealed himself to be through Jesus. And I want you to think about that. I want to encourage you to build up your faith in such a way that your faith in God outweighs your fear in anything else. Somewhat ironic to talk about this, but when I was growing up, one of my greatest fears was public speaking. I hated speech class. Ironically enough, I took speech in high school, hated it. First semester of college, I took speech again, hated it. And it was three quarters of the way through that speech class that my brother was in a really bad car accident, was in a coma. I actually had to drop out of school at the end of that semester, and I had to retake speech again. And when I came back in the third time, the speech teacher I had, I absolutely loved. And I had this love for public speaking as a result of the position that God put me in, that it actually took the third time over to get me to a place where it was like, I actually think I can do this. But the reason that I hated public speaking wasn't just because I hated public speaking, it was because I was afraid of what you would think of me and the things that I had to say. And so ultimately, it was this fear of rejection. Like, are they going to like me? Are they going to hate me? And so at the end of the day, what I really cared about was you, the crowd, the people. It's the same thing that makes us fearful of speaking today is what will people think of us? But the reality isn't that, like, I just overcame this fear, right? It's that I came to be more amazed with Jesus more than I fear people. And there's something about that in our life when we become more amazed with Jesus than any fear that the enemy can launch our way. What is it that you're fearful of right now? And how does it look to be more amazed with Christ, more amazed with Jesus right now than the fear that's captivating you? We have access, church, to the, the approval and the love and the life of God because when we were in rebellion, Jesus literally endured our greatest fears. He, he, he endured the rejection of the people he came to serve and save. He was, by all the world's standards, Jesus was a failure. Jesus never owned property. Jesus never held a political office. Jesus never wrote a book. Jesus even endured death as a criminal on a cross, something he did not even deserve. He took our fears and let them do the worst to him so that through his sacrifice and his resurrection, he might give us access to God to be one with him. That's the story. If you're a Christian, let your heart be stirred by the Holy Spirit to the wonder and the costly grace that has brought you into communion with such an amazing God that frees you from those fears.
I'm so grateful for that. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you this morning to repent, to turn from your sin, your arrogance, you thinking that you have your own way, to begin to worship Jesus and give him the front seat in your life this morning that you could find freedom from your fears as well because courage is not the absence of fear, right? Courage is obeying Jesus in the presence of fear. That's courage. Nehemiah didn't have his fear completely removed. He just understood who he worked for and who it was that was in charge so that any fear that came his way, he still had more courage than he had fear to stand up in the midst of it and continue the work that God had asked him to do. So Anthem, may we be a people who submit our fears to Jesus this morning. My challenge to you, may we be those who have our eyes open to the reality of God's glory and his love and God's power, even over death in our life, the greatest fear that we can have that God has power over. And in light of those truths, may we be bold and courageous in our call and our mission as the people of God. If you don't think you have a call and a mission, I want you to look at your marriage this morning and I want you to look at your friendships and I want you to look at your coworkers and the jobs that God's given you. I want you to look at the life that he's granted you to steward. And then I want you to tell me that you don't have some great call in your life because you're not on a stage with a microphone preaching to people. Your call is great. And how many of you in this room has felt opposition in your life in some form or fashion in the last month? Six months, year, your life. All of you. And the enemy has tried his best to captivate you by fear, to pull you away from the good work that he has for you. This morning, I want to pray for you, and I want to ask that the Lord would just supernaturally strengthen his church, that he would not remove the fear, but he'd give us courage to stand up in it, to continue to be faithful to what he's asked us to do, to invest in your spouse, to love them, to serve them sacrificially, to be the best friend you can be to people, to see people that nobody else sees, to be a voice for those that, know, that don't have a voice for themselves, to work hard even in the job that you think sucks. You're gonna work as unto the Lord and believe that God's placed you there and he's provided for you in that place. That's your work and it's good work. As Nehemiah refers, it's good work. And you all have the, the, the option at any point to cut ties and to bail and go do what you want to do. Nehemiah at any point could have been like, this is just too much work. I'm going back to being a cupbearer. I made more money, didn't have to deal with all the problems. Like sometimes I'm like, dude, nine to five job sounds pretty sweet. You know, like <laughs> cut ties, go do what I want to do. But the reality is, is the Lord wants to strengthen you where you're at and give you a different perspective for your life not have you leave and do the easy thing, but to continue to remain and even do the hard thing and find a lot of joy in it, amen? Would you guys stand with me? Just bow your heads if you're here this morning and um, you've found yourself in positions in life as of late, just captivated by fear the fear of the what ifs. Maybe it's one of the three fears that I talked about this morning. Maybe it's something totally different. But if you find yourself just being captivated by fear, would you raise your hand so we can pray for you? 
Keep your hands up. Let's pray for everybody who's come there. Jesus, I thank you for these people who have the courage, even the boldness right now, Jesus, to raise their hands and to admit that fear has captivated them. It's taken a seat in their lives that only you should have. And I pray for them right now, Jesus. Give them just a kingdom perspective on this fear that they're facing, that the enemy wants to use to paralyze them, to pull them away from the good work that you have for them. I pray this morning that they be strengthened and built up in you, Jesus, as we know that you are way better, way stronger, way more powerful and potent than any fear that the enemy can launch at us. And so I pray this morning, God, even supernaturally as we pray this morning, that your peace would subside on your people that we can take a deep breath and know that even the things that the enemy wants to use against us, you're gonna use for your glory and your gain. And so I pray for them, Jesus, that they be found in you this morning, God, captivated by you. Remove the idols of fear, the, the, the idols in our life of success and achievement and all these things that keep us persevering for the wrong reasons. Give us a godly perspective on what the good work is that you've called us to. Show us who our spouses and who our friends are and our coworkers and show us um, how to engage the people at the grocery store and how to see the people that nobody else sees, how to be the hands and the feet of Jesus and the venues that you place us in on a regular basis. And I pray, Jesus, that your church would come alive. We're living in times where the enemy wants nothing less that to hold us up in our houses and believe that we can't go anywhere or do anything because of all the what ifs. But I pray your church be freed and released that Jesus, we would see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in 2023 in a real tangible Everybody. My name is Gary. I'm one of your elders, and I, I count it a privilege to facilitate a communion, communion this morning, which we're going to partake together. Um, I'm glad Chris talked about uh, fear. Not, not about fear, but perfect love that casts out fear. And a question this week has kind of reminded me, um, is how do we know that God loves us? What do we claim when we pray? And some of the things that come to mind are uh, when, we, when we pray, we think of uh, our house over our head, our family, our health, our friends, and various things like that. But the question is, is what, what happens when one of these things goes away? Does he not love us anymore? What happens when they all go away? Does he not love us? Let me read this passage. It's from 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 10. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son 
as an atoning sacrifice for sins. Uh, Chris, we've been talking about Nehemiah and uh, coming back to Jerusalem and the walls and the temple and everything. Uh, but the temple eventually was torn down again. Was God really interested in these stones? He was interested in more than that, sending his son and creating a temple among us. We are the church. We are the temple of God. And I thank, thank him for that. In 1 Corinthians 2, this is related to the communion, but he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We do this communion monthly, and we want to emphasize that the table is for all who believe, all who trust and have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And regarding children, we leave that decision up to the parents. So we want to invite you to come. There's tables up front here. These are all gluten-free, by the way. And I love it when bread is kind of, you have one loaf and you pull it off. But just think of all of these little wafers as coming from one vat, maybe. I'm not sure. And the, and the, and the juice also. But uh, as you feel led, come up to one of the tables. There's a couple in the back as well. And take it and... Uh, Feel free to partake in communion when you feel ready. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I just thank you so much for the big vision, for the things that you have prepared over the history of the world from the beginning, the Savior, the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. Lord, you have provided him for us as an atonement, bringing us back to yourself there's no greater love than the thing of you sacrificing and sending your own son. And we thank you for that, Lord. We know that in all of these things, that whether, whether we, we have them or we're not, we thank you for those things. And it sure, surely is your love for providing family and friends and roofs over our heads and our health, Father. But more and more than that, when these things go away, your love remains. And we thank you for Jesus. We just want to remember him this morning by taking part in this this event. Just thank you and pray in Jesus' name.